It's possible that some of you, due to the fact that a book's been published, a movie made, but you have heard of the Shackelford Expedition. The year was 1915. They called it the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Uh, men of a pioneering spirit thought to reach the South Pole. And so Shackelford was the leader of 29 men who intended to not only reach the, the South Pole, but to cross the uh, continent of Antarctica as they did so. Now, it was a daring attempt, but it failed. Uh, long before they reached anywhere close to their destination, their ship got uh, uh, caught in an ice pack. They got frozen in there, and before it was done, the freezing ice crushed the ship, and the men had to abandon it. No one in the outside world knew where the men were. This was in the age before radio. Nobody knew that their expedition was in trouble. They were alone in the frozen Antarctic. Their only hope of rescue lay in a few whaling camps, and the closest one was a thousand miles away. For five months, Shackelford and his party drifted on ice flows. They endured storms, blizzards, perilous moments when the flow they were on would uh, crumble beneath them and they had to quickly find shelter on another one. Finally, in desperation, uh, they took to the sea in three lifeboats that they brought with them from the ship. And after days of just treacherous travel, the 20 man, uh, 29 men landed on a piece of land called Elephant Island. Now, it did have some advantages. It got them off the sea. They could survive eating seals and penguins that migrated there. But Elephant Island offered no hope of rescue. The men were no closer to being rescued there than they had been before. The hope of rescue still lay 800 miles away across what is admitted to be some of the most dangerous waters in the world. So Shackelford and five of his men set sail in the largest of the lifeboats, all of 22 feet. And they set across those waters. They promised to return to rescue the remaining men. In time, the waiting men began to climb to the top of a knoll on the island and look out to sea in the direction that they knew the continent of South America lay, hoping against hope to see a ship on the horizon. Two months passed, then three, then four. August 30th dawned clear and cold on Elephant Island. As the men prepared to warm themselves with mugs of broth made from the backbone of a seal, one of the men made the daily trek to the top of the knoll. He returned running and out of breath. He had seen a ship. Four, uh, four months and six days after Shackelford and his five men set sail, they had returned. The men on the island knew that their wait was over. Rescue had arrived. Well, almost 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was born into this world. With his birth on the horizon, a priest by the name of Zacharias announced that the waiting was over. The rescue that man had been looking for for generations 
had arrived. A Savior had entered the world. And this morning, what I want you to see is why the birth of Jesus Christ matters to my life and yours today. How our lives benefit from celebrating Christmas and knowing that Jesus Christ has come. So Luke chapter number 1, we're going to finally finish this chapter this morning, uh, picking up our reading in verse number 57, and we're going to read to the close of the chapter. As you're able, I want to invite you to stand together for the reading of the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter number 1, the waiting is over. That's what John had to tell uh, not John, but Zacharias had to tell as uh, his son John the Baptist was born. Verse 57. Now Elizabeth full time came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her. And they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, not so. Now, if you could read that in the Greek, it says, no way, Jose. That is not his name. She says, he shall be called John. And they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying, his name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was open immediately. And his tongue loose. And he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them to their hearts saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. The little baby John the Baptist. Verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him, the Lord, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadows of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel our heavenly father we want to thank you lord for your word this morning and lord for all the hope that it gives us father as we read here this morning of Zechariah filled with the holy spirit god that is my desire today that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit and use me 
to preach your word in the demonstration of your power and your spirit in a manner, God, that does more than just reach the ear and reach the mind, but reaches the heart. Father, we read here of a Savior born. And Father, it is my prayer this morning that before every, anyone leaves this place, everyone knows that Jesus Christ is his or her personal Savior from sin. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word now, and would you bless this congregation that has gathered to hear it preached. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The interval between the last word of God in the Old Testament and the first words of God in the New Testament are often called the 400 silent years. Those were years of waiting. The people of Israel were waiting on God. They were waiting on God to fulfill his promises. They were waiting on God to send John the Baptist. They didn't know his name, but they knew that one was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And when he arrived, the Savior would not be long behind. Now, for nine months, Zacharias had known their waiting was over. But he couldn't tell anybody. Because of his unbelief, whenever he received the message of God concerning Elizabeth and the birth of their son, because of his unbelief, God had disciplined him with silence. So, have you ever been in a place where you know like a secret that you know everybody wants to know and you cannot speak of it? Now, I, I struggle with that, okay? If, if there's something that you don't want everybody to know, just don't tell me, okay? And, and, I, and, I, and I wouldn't tell it on purpose, but it would probably slip out somewhere. Well, Zacharias couldn't do that. God had tied his lips, okay? Uh, sealed his lips, tied his tongue. He could not speak for nine months. Well, as so often happens whenever God's work of discipline is accomplished in our life, the moment that his tongue was loose, Zechariah used it to praise and glorify God. Verse 67 tells us that he was filled with God's spirit. He began to prophesy. And I just want you to note two statements that he made because they're like bookends in this part of the chapter that help us understand the thrust or message of these verses. The first one is found in verse number 68, where he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And you ought to mark these words. For he hath visited and redeemed his people. He hath visited his people. And then if you drop down to verse number 78, he says again, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring on high hath visited us. Zacharias lost no time in telling everybody that would listen that their wait was over. Uh, the, the one they had been waiting for had come. Their Messiah had come to earth. It was time for God's rescue plan to be put in place. Now, if you're saying, but wait a second, preacher. Um, he was a little confused, wasn't he? Because Jesus wouldn't be born for another, like, three months, right? But Zechariah knew something. We're going to get there for you in a minute. But here it is. When God starts something, you can be sure he'll finish it. <laughs> the fact that, that uh, John the Baptist had been born, sealed it in his mind. 
that the Lord promised to come to his people was coming also. There's some great truths here in uh, this passage, and uh, we, we want to take and just boil them down to two. The Bible tells us that our Savior has come. God wants us to understand why that matters to your life today, how it benefits you to know 2,000 years after the fact, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, why it matters that the Savior has come. Number one, I want you to notice this. It tells us that God's word can be trusted. Now, that's an important theme to Luke. Luke says there are things that Christians most surely believe. By the way, all of those things are recorded right here in the Bible. He is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. He says, I want you to know the certainty of those things. I mean, by the time we finish reading the book of Luke and studying the book of Luke, here's what God wants you to know. You can pick this book up anywhere, turn to any place, read any portion of it, and God's word can be trusted. So, well, what's the evidence of that? Well, number one, God kept his word to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember, the angel Gabriel had come to Zacharias and had told him, your wife Elizabeth, in spite of her age, in spite of her years of childlessness, is going to have a son. And when he's born, you're going to call his name John. Zacharias responded with unbelief. He said, I need some proof. Give me some evidence that these things are going to happen. And God said, okay, here's your evidence. You're not going to be able to speak again until all these things are done. And he couldn't. The Bible says he could not speak. For the next nine months, he lived in silence, his own. He could not speak with his own voice and tell anyone what he had experienced in the temple. Well, nine months later, everything that God said would come to pass. We read in verse number 57 that Elizabeth had delivered. John the Baptist had been born. Eight days later, they take him to the temple according to custom. He circumcises. There, they record his name on the register. And uh, right away, the people assume his name's going to be uh, Zacharias. And Zacharias says, no, his name is John. And the minute those things that God spoke had been fulfilled, just as God had said, Zacharias' tongue was loose and he could speak again. Elizabeth delivered. Zacharias affirmed his son's name. Now, I just want to point something out before we move on. It's not a big thing, but I think it's an important thing. You, 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 we read in here just a minute that everybody just assumed that the boy would be named after his father. I mean, that was a very common thing. He should have been Zach Jr. But uh, whenever, whenever uh, uh, Elizabeth said, no, his name's going to be John, they say, oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't name him John. Nobody in your family's named John. And that was the custom of the day. You didn't name a child, okay, after someone whose name already hadn't been had in the family. Did that come out right? So, so you couldn't have a John because you'd never had a John. Okay? So it wasn't according to custom. But I got good news for you today. If you ever have to choose between following custom or following the Word of God, just follow the Bible. Just follow the Bible. Now, here's why I say that, because I realize sometimes we live and grow up in families, and, and there's just some things our families do by custom, but then we get saved and we realize, as a child of God, I can't do those things anymore. I shouldn't do anything. What should I do? Well, don't worry about following the custom. Just do what God's Word tells you to do. 
You know, sometimes, you know, especially as churches and Christians, we kind of get in this mode as, well, that's just the way it's always been done. Well, just because it's always been done that way, if the Bible says it ought to be done a different way, guess what we ought to do? We ought to abandon custom and follow the word of God. And so here is Zacharias, and uh, you say, why wasn't he concerned? Because he had a clear command of God. His name is going to be John. And so he did what the Bible told him to do. If you must choose to, 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 to choose between custom and the word of God, break the custom and go with the scriptures. Zacharias, tongue loose, he began to praise God. Again, I just want to point out, his silence had been God's discipline. Nine months later, this is not a bitter man. Nine months under discipline is a long time. Nine months knowing that the only reason I can't speak is because I doubted God nine months earlier. And yet here, he's not bitter. The minute his tongue's loose, he begins to bless God for what God has done in his life. And that spirit that he exhibited made an impact on the people that were there. If you look at verse number 65, uh, look, look at verse 64, and his mouth was open immediately, and his tongue loosed. Okay. No bitterness, no complaints. He spake and praised God. Verse number 65, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. This is really important. You know, when we allow God to have his way in our lives, even in times of discipline, he does things that people just can't stop talking about. Do you, do you suppose it might have been a little different if when his tongue was loosed and he had the opportunity to speak, instead of praising God, he had started venting? I mean, just... Nine months of pent-up resentment. I can't believe that God did this to me. I was so undeserving. I would have got the point after the first week. Do you think that things might have turned out a little differently here? If discipline had produced resentment, but it didn't. He was so excited to know that God had kept his word, that he could only do one thing, and that was praise the Lord. God always keeps his word. Do not ever let any circumstance in life that God allows create a spirit of bitterness and resentment in your heart. You and I can believe God, trust God, wait on God, and let God work. And if we will let God have his way, we will thank the Lord for what he does. And people will not be able to stop talking about what God has done. Have you ever been in some of those circumstances? And I mean, people say, boy, that was just like a miracle. I just can't believe. People excited about what is done because we have allowed God to have his way. I want to assure you of this this morning. God not only kept his word for Zacharias, Elizabeth, others we read in the Bible, God will keep his word to you. As we're celebrating Christmas and you think, that's right, Jesus was born. And he lived and died and was raised again. Right. According to the word of God. God kept his word. And the same God who kept his word in the past will keep his word in your life today. He has to. 
Number one, John 17, 17 says this. God's word is truth. When you open the Bible, you are reading truth. Not just what is true, but the standard by which all truth is judged. God's word is truth. In Titus 1.20 says, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. God can only speak and give the truth. In Hebrews 10.23 it says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Nothing wavering. Don't be like doubting Zacharias. Be like Mary. Be it unto me, according, uh, according to the word of the Lord. I, I'm your handmaid, just be it unto me, as you've said. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. God's, what God says is true, because God cannot lie. The Bible, therefore, and that's why Hebrews 10.23 is telling us, is absolutely worthy of our complete trust our total confidence. Whenever you're needing to make decisions in life, there is no firmer ground upon which to stand. There's no more trustworthy source to address the need of our lives than the Bible that God has placed in our hands. Have you noticed that you can't trust everything you read on the internet? You, you can't even believe everything that's claimed in the name of science, can you? Statistics can be manipulated. Photographs can be uh, 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 faked. You can absolutely trust God's word to speak what is true, to command what is right, and to do what is good in your life. As you're preparing for your Christmas celebration, then you reflect upon the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world. Remember, that's your proof that God keeps his word. You can trust God to keep his word to you. God has proven to be trustworthy in the past. He'll be the same promise-keeping God today. God will keep his word. You can allow him to have his way in your life. And if you do, God will do things in your life that people can't stop talking about. Just trust the Lord. The coming of Jesus means that God's word can be trusted. Notice number two. It also tells us that salvation has been provided. Salvation has been provided. You know, Zacharias's praise was not confined to his joy at becoming a father long after he and everybody had given up hope that that would ever happen through his wife Elizabeth. His joy, his praise is expressed in confidence in the truth that the long-awaited day of salvation has come. God has visited his people. The day spring from on high has visited us. He knew that, the, and, and, and much of his joy was that in the birth of John the Baptist was all the promise of the birth of Jesus, the Savior that they needed. Uh, uh, the, the, the coming of Jesus Christ is our reminder that salvation has been provided. And as far as Zacharias was concerned, again, what God begins is as good as done, and that's why he speaks as if all these things have already taken place. So let's look. Three things he says that God has done to save us this morning. Three things that God has done to save us. Number one, God has returned to us. That's what that word visited has the, 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 the concept of, of God returning to his people. 
In Genesis, we learned that Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, God uh, walked out on him. Okay? Prior to Adam's sin, God had walked with Adam in the garden. They'd had a relationship that they experienced together on this earth that was just as real as any relationship that you and I might have with another person. Uh, God walked with him in the garden. For 4,000 years after Adam's sin, God never walked on earth with men in the same fashion that he'd walked with Adam. It hadn't happened. But when Jesus was born, God returned. God returned. He visited his people. Okay. God came to walk and talk and interact and eat with people, just as he had with Adam in the garden. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that's how, how, how John begins that little epistle, verse John. He says, that which was from the beginning, from the beginning, like what beginning? Like the beginning of all beginnings. That in the beginning that God created and in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the Word of life. They say, we're telling you about a Jesus that we heard him with these ears, we saw him with these eyes, we followed him, observed the miracles he performed, the way he interacted, we touched him. God visited us. In the person of Jesus Christ, God returned. The first step in God's plan of salvation was to return to this world as man's savior. God returned to us. Notice also it says that he redeemed us. In uh, verse number 68, it says he had visited and redeemed his people. We need to understand the biblical, the biblical definition or meaning of redemption. You know, today, when you hear redemption out in the world at large, it often goes something like this. And I'm just going to use a sports uh, uh, illustration because that's what, I, like, it just, it just, I like it, okay? <laughs> sports works for me. We're going to try to make it work for you. But you have an athlete, and he makes a very, very uh, bad play. It costs the, 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 the team their game. And, uh, and a lost game can mean the difference between a championship at the end of the season and, and not being in it. And so he's bad-mouthed for the whole season. Then, long towards the end, he makes a spectacular play, game-saving play, winning play. And you'll hear the sports analyst say he has atoned for the mistake he made back in that earlier game. He has redeemed himself with this accomplishment. So whenever we hear redemption out in the world at large today, we get this idea of self-atonement. It's something that we win by a better performance. I messed up, and somewhere down the line, I have to try and redeem myself and do better. Well, we bring that into the religious world, and our ideas is we know that we've messed up. Okay? Is there anybody here who just be uh, honest enough to say, yeah, I'm right. I have sinned? <laughs> you know? Okay, I appreciate all the head nods, but make me feel comfortable. I, raise your hand. I've said, <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. You know, but we know that. I've messed up. 
And what religion tells us is you have to do something to redeem yourself. You have to do something. You have to do something better than the bad you did, or you have to do more better than the bad you've done. I mean, the good has to outweigh the bad in order for you to redeem yourself. Well, that's not biblical redemption. Uh, and redemption in the Bible has this idea. It is buying back something that was lost or forfeited, often because of the inability to pay an indebtedness. So in my Bible reading this morning, I read the example of two men. Both of them owed a man a great deal of money. One of them owed about a year's worth of wages, and one of them owed him about 10 years of wages, and the man forgave both of them. Okay? Uh, neither one was able to pay. Okay? They forfeited whatever rights they had because of their indebtedness, but the individual forgave them all. And that's the idea behind redemption. It, it, it is buying back something that was lost, or, or, and often because of the inability to pay an indebtedness. We have a chorus that we sing from time to time that really captures the idea really well. So here it goes. He paid a debt I did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's redemption. I owed a debt I could not pay. Jesus paid a debt he could not owe. He redeemed us. The Son of God returned to us. He came so that he might redeem us. And the last thing that, that uh, Zachariah says here is that because he came, he's rescued us. In verse number 69, it says, And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, if you want to just kind of get the mental picture here of horn, if you've driven down Interstate 10 towards um, Tucson, and on the right is Picacho Peak, that like horn-like mountain that rises up, and I mean, that's a stiff climb. It really is. Okay, that's the idea of horn of salvation. It just lifts up high. It's impenetrable. It's this rocky crag. It's something firm and solid. He says that's what God has done for us. He's put something in place, just a mighty horn of salvation. In, in verse number 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. In verse number 77, John's mission would be to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. John tells us first, I mean, Zechariah tells us first that Jesus came to save us from our enemies. Who hates you any more than the devil does? No one. What greater enemies do people have than death, the grave, and hell? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, says that Jesus was born to die. The Bible says he came to taste death for every man. To die so I wouldn't have to. To die so you wouldn't have to. A little later on in that chapter, it explains why he did that. It says that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus came to save us from our enemies. He came to save us from that enemy called Satan. 
He came to take and abolish that fear that men have of dying, that fear of, of, of not being sure of what's going to happen to me after I die. And by the way, there's a lot of people I talk to uh, on a continual basis. And this one thing I ask, do you know that you'll go to heaven when you die? If you were to die today, you're 100% sure that heaven will be your home. And, and so many people say, well, I hope so. I hope so. A lot of people on their deathbeds are afraid of dying. Why? Because they don't know what awaits them. Jesus Christ came to take away that fear. He died in our place so that you and I could put our trust in him and know that the way that he had victory over death, hell, and the grave is the way that we will have victory over those things because of our faith in him. Jesus came to save us from our enemies. He came to save us from our sins. The very last part of this, verse 77, again, it says, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. John the Baptist was born to connect people to the one who could forgive their sins. It was John the Baptist who would point at Jesus one day and say, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John's mission was to point people to Jesus because in connecting people to Jesus, Jesus can provide forgiveness or as the Bible says here, remission of our sins. John the Baptist was to give knowledge of salvation. The Bible says here he was to give light to them that sit in darkness, verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. You know, people are lost today. It's the word the Bible uses, lost. What that means is they don't know how to get to heaven. They don't know how to get their sins forgiven. A lot of lost people, what it means is they, don't, they did not know how to find their way to God for the forgiveness that they need. They sit in darkness. They, they can't move. In the darkness, they just don't know which way to go, which way to turn. They're lost. They're also described as perishing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. The, 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 the reality is that all men without Christ are perishing. Okay? They sit in the shadow of death. And that, that's an image, okay? Death hangs over them like a shadow. It could engulf them at any moment. Their life would be over. And what they need is someone who can bring a light to them and lead them out of the darkness into the salvation that they're looking for. Perishing people. It was John's job to give people knowledge of salvation. It was John's purpose to give light to them that sat in darkness. Do you realize that John's purpose is your purpose if you're a Christian today? You and I are meant to give people the knowledge of salvation because most people will hear it no other way. If they don't hear it from us Christians, they will never hear it out in the world. We're to give knowledge of salvation. You and I are to carry the light of the gospel with us into every dark place in this world that we go. We're to rescue those who are sitting in the shadow of death. Really what we're to do is tell them the waiting is over. 
The Savior has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been born into this world. You're not waiting for salvation. The reality is that today the tide has turned. The world is not waiting upon God to send a Savior. God is waiting on the world to receive the Savior that he has sent. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. It means God's not dragging his feet. He says, the reason why it seems like God stretches things out so long is he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you can picture all the effort that Mr. Shackleton and those other 28 men made, months crossing from ice flow to ice flow to ice flow and finally abandoning their lives to three little lifeboats and sailing across unknown waters and then landing on Elephant Island and just, uh, and just etching out an existence on that island for four more months, eating whatever they could, surviving the best they could, while five, of, I mean, six of their men got in this boat and they traveled across one of those treacherous seas known to, to, to seafarers today to finally arrive. And if you just read the whole story, when they got to land, they still had to scale a mountain range to be able to get to a city where, self, where help could be found. I mean, it was just this tremendous effort. They refused to give up. Why? Because people need to hear People needed to be rescued. Well, that's what God is doing today. God is going to great lengths and great efforts because he knows the Savior has been provided and he's just waiting on people to receive the gift of salvation that has been purchased by Jesus Christ. He's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that you perish. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God doesn't want anybody to spend eternity outside of heaven all should come to repentance if you're here this morning and you've been waiting for somebody to just open a bible and show you how to be saved you've had questions about it what would i have to do to know for sure that heaven is my home what what, what, what do i have to do to know that all my sins have been forgiven maybe in the back of your mind you think of some things and they just trouble you you you, you know that you just never have done them Yes, they're in your past. They just kind of like haunt you. <laughs> Has God forgiven me? How can I know? If you've been waiting for somebody to show you how to have God's forgiveness, if you've been waiting for somebody to open a Bible and show you how to be saved, I want you to know this morning, your wait's over. If you'll just come, we have folks that will open this Bible, use nothing but the word of God to show you how your sins can be forgiven and you can have a home in heaven when you die. Now, many of you here, you said, yes, amen. That was me one day. Not anymore. I'm not waiting anymore. I've accepted Christ as my Savior, right? Who's waiting on you to tell them? Who's waiting on you to tell them? Who is sitting in the darkness. Who, who, who is engulfed in that shadow of death. They're lost. Perishing. They don't know the way. They need someone. To tell them. They're waiting on you. Who's waiting on you. This morning. To tell them. To point them and say. There's the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. He takes away the sins of the world. He takes care of your sin. Today. Who's waiting on you.
And one more question this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, you've been following God's word. You've been waiting on God to do what he says. I mean, and you're just not seeing the result that you thought you ought to see. Things aren't changing as rapidly as you thought they ought to change. And you're like, well, what should I do? I can tell you what to do. Trust God's word. Because God always keeps his word. The day will come when your wait will be over. You will see God work. God will fulfill the promise he's made. God will do what he says. And you will know that God's word is trustworthy. Your faith is not in vain this morning. When you place it in the Bible, you just commit your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, you let God have his way in you. Okay? You will find that in time, the answer you've been waiting for will come because God's word can be trusted. I want to ask you this morning to stand, please. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. Heads are bowed or eyes are closed.